How are you all? I'm so glad you're okay, because nobody else said anything. Uh, so welcome to Tyler, Texas, where even the farmers are well-dressed. Um, guy looks fancy. I can tell you want this higher. Not that high. It's oh. all right. It'll be good. It'll be good. Uh, so yeah, so welcome. My name is Jason. Um, I spoke uh, here at the last time, um, and then I talked with Dave Zoll a few months ago, a few weeks ago, and Dave was like, everywhere I go, I tell people, Jason Michelli could talk at a Mockingbird conference every year for the rest of his life, and he'll never top what he did in Tyler, Texas the last time. And I was like, what a, like a, a crippling, paralyzing, to like forever consign me to the Mockingbird equivalent of Genesis No Trespass sophomore album. Um, so I bring that up just so you know that not only is Dave Zoll the author of Low Anthropology, he is an example of it. Uh, would you all pray with me? Gracious God, you have sown your son throughout the world. And therefore, we can stumble upon your grace in surprising and unexpected people and places. So may the words of my mouth and whatever stories and thoughts they might conjure in others Be acceptable to you. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people say. In his small catechism, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther gives instructions for preachers and teachers of the gospel. Luther writes, whatever is presented to us in words must be reduced to pictures. For without a picture, we can neither think nor understand anything. That is how Christ everywhere in the gospel carries out his ministry. He taught people the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven by means of pictures and stories. You know, in other words, if God gives himself to us in a promise, then that particular promise gets into us more deeply through stories. And fortunately, when you spend your workaday life with the folks that Jesus has the poor taste to call friends, you know, when you do church work, stories are not hard to discover. Because sin is original to us all, and because, as Robert Capon notes, the Father has already sown the Son in all the world. Ministry, whether it's the, the professional pensioned sort or the harder unpaid kind, ministry is like an unceasing four-season harvest of grace. For example, and I've changed their names to protect the guilty, for example, a long time ago in a county far, far away, 
at an unsuspecting church in the Blue Ridge Mountains upon which the bishop foisted me. Several years ago, we staged a, a Christmas pageant during the season of Advent. When it came time for the angelic chorus to deliver their lines in unison, glory to God in the highest, you could hear Katie, a, a first grade angel, vomiting her breakfast into the trash can over by the grand piano. The sound of Katie's retching was loud enough so that when the other angels should have been proclaiming, and on earth, peace to, to all the people, instead, the other angels started gagging and, and covering their noses. <laughs> Meanwhile, apparently bored by the angels' news of a Messiah, two of the shepherds, both third-grade boys and both sons of wise men, they started brawling on the altar floor next to the manger. Their free-for-all prompted one of the wise men to leave his entourage and stride angrily up the sanctuary aisle, smack his shepherd's son upside the ear, and threaten, boy, Santa won't be bringing NASCAR tickets this year if you can't hold your shit together. <laughs> Absolutely true story. Truth be told, truth be told, the little church had neither the numbers nor the talent to man a, a lemonade stand, much less mount a production of the Christmas story. Nonetheless, this, this brusque, take-charge mother who was a, a new member in the congregation, she had approached me about staging a Christmas pageant. And because I was a, a rookie pastor and didn't know any better, and, and honestly because I was terrified of this woman who was always compulsively clad in red holiday sweaters, I, I said yes to her. The set constructed in the church sanctuary was made to look like the, the small mountain town where we lived. And so the Bethlehem skyline was dotted with a, a Burger King and the local VFW, the funeral home, and instead of an inn, the, the Super 8 Motel. <laughs> At every stop in Bethlehem, someone sat behind a cardboard door, and, and Joseph would knock, and the person behind the door would say, sorry, ain't no room here. The old man behind the door of the cardboard VFW was named Fred. Fred was the oldest member of the congregation. Fred sat on a stool behind the set wearing his VFW beret and chewing on an unlit cigarillo. Fred was almost completely deaf and, and not a little senile, so when Mary and Joseph came to him, they didn't bother knocking on the door. They just opened it up and, and asked the surprised-looking old man if he had any room for them, to which he would respond by, by looking around at his surroundings as though he were wondering where he was and, and how he'd gotten there. Because, of course, he was wondering where he was and how he'd gotten there. For some reason, be it haste or, or laziness or a, a dare involving some sum of cash, for some reason, the, the mother in charge of the pageant, she had made the magi responsible for their own costumes, <laughs> thus resulting in what looked more like a Halloween pageant than a Christmas pageant. One wise man wore a white lab coat and carried a stethoscope. Another wise man was dressed like the former wrestler, the Iron Sheik. 
WWF. And the third wise man wore a gray and green Philadelphia Eagles bathrobe. And for some inexplicable reason, he had aluminum foil wrapped around his head. King Herod was played by the head usher, Jimmy. At 6'6", and wearing a crown and a white fur-collared purple robe and carrying a golden cane, King Herod looked more like Cosmo Kramer as an uptown gigolo than he did a biblical character. That was for you, Dave. When it came time for the performance, I took a seat on the bench in the back of the sanctuary where the ushers normally sat, and, and gazing at the cast and the production design from afar, I briefly wondered to myself a, a question that Jesus' friends frequently caused me to ask from time to time. Why didn't I go to law school? <laughs> I sat down, and King Herod handed me a program. On the, on the cover of the program was the title, The, the Gifts of Christmas. On the inside of the program was a, a list of the cast members' names and their roles. As the pageant began with a song lip-synced by the angels, the, the other usher for the day sat next to me. His name was Mike. Mike was an insurance auditor. He had salt and pepper hair and dark eyes. He, he led a, a Bible study on Wednesday mornings that met at the diner. He delivered meals on wheels. He chaired the church council. He, survived, uh, he, he supervised the coat closet. He, he mentored kids in the juvenile justice system. He was the little church's most generous donor, and he was more than a little officious in his righteousness. Mike never liked me very much. Mike sat down, fixed his reading glasses at the end of his nose, and he opened the program, and he began mumbling names under his Breath. Mary played by, Elizabeth played by, Magi number one played by. His voice was barely above a whisper, but it was thick with contempt. Of all the people, of all the nerve, he whispered. And I knew immediately what he was implying, or, or rather I knew what had gotten under his skin. There were no teenage girls in the congregation to be cast. And so Mary was played by a grown woman named Pam, a grown woman who was married to Roger, a man more than twice her age. She'd married Roger only after splitting up his previous marriage. And the, the holy mother of God was being portrayed by a, a homewrecker. Of the three magi, one of them had scandalized the church by ruining his father's business to fund his gambling habit. Another wise man was separated from his wife, but not legally so, and, and was living with another woman. Reluctantly shepherding the elementary age shepherds was a high school junior. He'd gotten busted earlier that year for drug possession. His mother was dressed as an angel that day, helping to direct the heavenly host. Her husband, her boy's father, had walked out on them a year earlier. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, was played by a woman who was, who was new to the church, a woman who, who often wore sunglasses to worship or, or heavy makeup or, or who sometimes didn't bother at all and just wore the bruises given to her by a, a boyfriend none of us had ever met. 
the man playing the role of Zechariah, the, the husband of Elizabeth and, and the father of Jesus' cousin John. He, he owned a construction company and had been accused of and charged for fraud by several customers in town, including a, a couple in the congregation. He built them out of thousands upon thousands of dollars. Zechariah, his name was Bill. Zechariah, every first Sunday of the month, Bill would begin to cry, tears streaming down his sunburnt carpenter's cheeks. He would cry whenever I, I placed a, a piece of bread in his rough and calloused hands and promised him, this is the body of Christ broken for you. You know, more than anyone in that little church, he depended on the promise that when Christ says, this is my body broken for you, the you means me too. There's no conditions, I told him once after the you know what with his business hit the fan. It doesn't matter what you've done. For all of us, that you means me, the forgiveness. It's for you. You've got to take Christ at his absolving word, or you're calling God a liar, which is a lot worse of a sin than anything you've committed. The truth about you, I said, is never what you see in the mirror, good or bad. The truth about you is always found in the broken piece of bread placed in your hand. You're no different than anyone else here. Mike, the insurance auditor, held the program for the Christmas pageant in his hands, and he read the cast members' names under his breath. And then he rolled up the program, and he poked me with it. Just when the angel was delivering his news to Mary, Mike whispered into my ear, who picked the cast for this? Who chose them? Who chose her to play Mary? And he gestured with his rolled-up program at Roger's trophy wife. It's like Martin Luther said, I said, the church is a whore, but she's my mother. <laughs> but he just stared at me, waiting for an answer. And because I, I'm not a brave man, and because I didn't much like this woman, I, I pointed at the mother in charge. She did, I said. <laughs> the one in the reindeer sweater, she cast them all. Blame her. He shook his head in disgust, and then he gestured again towards Pam slash Mary, and he said, it's one thing for her to even show her face here Sunday after Sunday, but, but, but this... Do you really think she's the sort of person who should be starring in this story for our church and our community? What in the hell have you been preaching to her, Pastor? Go and sin some more? The narrator for the Christmas pageant that year was a woman who's, was a woman named Betty. Betty hadn't had the energy for, for any of the rehearsals. She just showed up at the worship service when it was time to perform the pageant, pushing a walker which had a, a black and green oxygen tank hanging from it. Betty was old and incredibly tiny, no bigger than the children that morning wearing gold pipe cleaner halos around their heads. Emphysema was killing Betty a breath at a time. She had to be helped up to the pulpit once the performance began. 
I'd spent hours in Betty's kitchen over the time I was her pastor sipping bad Folgers coffee and listening to her tell me about her family, about the dozen miscarriages she'd had in her life, about the, the pain of all those losses, how, how the pain was outweighed only by the joy of the child she'd grafted into their family tree about the husband who died suddenly before the dreams they'd had together could be checked off the list, about her, her daughter's broken marriage, and about her two grandsons who, in the complicated way of families, were now living with her. As the children finished their lip-synced opening song, and as the, the shepherd and angels and wise men took their places, and as Billy climbed into his makeshift throne, looking more like Harvey Keitel and Taxi Driver than King Herod, Betty struggled up to the pulpit. And with the walker resting next to the pulpit, the, the tube uh, to her oxygen was pulled almost taut to her face. And her fierce eyes were just barely visible above the microphone. And with her hands bruised from blood thinner, she spread out her script, and in a soft, raspy voice, she began to tell the story, beginning not with Luke or with John, but with Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. I wouldn't have chosen Matthew for a Christmas pageant, but again, I was terrified of the mother in charge. The cadence of Betty's delivery was dictated by the mask she had to put over her face every few seconds to fill her lungs with air. She shall bear a son, breath. And you were to name him Jesus, breath, for he will save his people from their sins, breath. Except... Except that morning, Betty didn't start by narrating the Christmas story. She, she, she went off script. I don't know if she went off script because she hadn't been at the rehearsals or if in her old age she was confused and, and rambling, or, or, or maybe she was just filling time while she tried to locate her spot in the script. I like to think that she heard the scuttlebutt from Mike and, and his righteous indignation over the likes of Pam starring as the Lord's highly favored one. Betty began by introducing the passage. The Bible tells us about God being born as Jesus, Betty said, only after a long list of begats. And she took a breath from her oxygen mask. Emmanuel, God with us, breath, comes from a family tree every bit as knotted as ours, breath. A family of scoundrels and unbelievers, breath. Rapists and hookers, breath. Cheats and those consumed by their resentment over being cheated upon, breath. All the way back to Abraham, breath. Who wasn't righteous, breath. But was reckoned so only on the basis of faith, breath. Christ comes from a family just like us, she said, and took a breath. He comes from sinners, for sinners, she said. And I looked over at Mike, who'd been standing in the narthex passing out programs, in addition to everything else, Mike was the head usher, too. 
When the pageant began, Mike's ears had been beat red and the vein in his forehead had been throbbing. So outrageous and incredulous was he that, he that we were telling the story of our Savior with these kinds of people. But hearing that tiny little woman utter the gospel promise, he suddenly hung his head. He looked embarrassed, as though the Holy Spirit had just smacked him upside the head. Humility is only ever something we discover because humility is something done to us. You know, Katie and the heavenly host nearly made it through the Christmas pageant in the clear, but, but when the wise men showed up delivering their gift-wrapped boxes, she ran to the trash can in the choir loft to deliver it into the last of her breakfast. Betty, the narrator, never made it to the next Christmas. She died that spring clutching the same promise she'd preached to us that Sunday in Advent. Zechariah left the church shortly after I did, and he became a preacher in a storefront startup church. Every Sunday, he preached the promise, the quote, that whether we mend our ways or not, when it comes to God, God never mends his ways, no matter what God will deal with you tomorrow, exactly as God dealt with you yesterday, by grace. Turns out the scoundrel was a pretty good preacher. And only those who know they're not good realize that the promise is too good not to believe. After the worship service that Sunday in Advent, I stood outside near the front door to the sanctuary, shaking hands as the bell rang and the organ groaned out the last notes of the postlude, and Mike was the last one to leave. In addition to everything else, he had always cleaned up the pews after worship and vacuumed up the communion crumbs from the floor. His hand felt sweaty and hot in my hand, even in the December air. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, he said. But I guess that doesn't stop us from comparing our landing spots, does it? You know, the man playing the innkeeper at the Super 8 motel, he was named Steve. And shortly before I departed that congregation, Steve had a, a massive stroke, and his, his prospects were grim. Only months before his stroke, he had been found out by his wife and his daughters. They discovered a, a statement for a credit card they didn't know he carried. And for years, he'd been keeping up a, a whole other family. Both women were with him when I arrived at the hospital, his wife and his other. Princeton Theological Seminary didn't prepare me for this, I thought. <laughs> As I stepped up to his bedside, at least we can dispense with the chit-chat, I thought. He had tears falling from the corners of his eyes onto the salty patches where earlier tears had pooled, and he struggled for what felt like a lifetime to get the word out through the wreckage between his brain and his mouth. Forgiveness, he mumbled. The word was almost unrecognizable. He was asking for forgiveness, for the forgiveness, he said. He'd been a leader in the church, chair of the worship committee, sang in the men's choir, dressed as St. Nicholas for the children's sermon every Christmas Eve. And it turned out he was at the top of the naughty list. 
lying and cheating and making a mockery of the Lord. He'd broken at least a third of the Ten Commandments. And the second time he asked for it, all he could get out was the But I nodded and I told him that yes, I would give him the absolution. And before I did so, I looked over at his wife, half expecting her to say, like hell you will. As if reading my mind, she said to me, well, get on with it. Or do you not really believe what you preach Sunday after Sunday, Pastor? Uh. His girls love him too much to end up anywhere he won't be, she said. If all that business you preach about grace is not true here, it's not true anywhere. And so I nodded. The promise I'd sown among them blossoming back upon me. So I stepped up to Steve's bedside. I felt like walking miles. Nevertheless, I gave him an assurance he longed to hear far more than a doctor's all clear. In the name of Jesus, I declare unto you the forgiveness of your sins, I said. Thank you. Both women said to me when I finished and turned to leave. Pam, the home-wrecking trophy wife who had played the mother of God, she was married to Roger, a sharp, successful, small-town lawyer whose alcoholism and philandering had destroyed his first two marriages, and by the time I was his pastor, was destroying his body. I went to visit Roger in the hospital in Charlottesville as he died slowly of liver failure. With each visit, his skin and his eyes assumed a more yellowed hue. After my final visit, when his breathing had gotten shallow and his words confused, I knew I should stop by his best friend's house on the way back to the parsonage. I knocked on the screen door on Billy's back porch, and, and I could hear a baseball game playing on the TV in the family room. Billy and his girlfriend, Dottie, had had me over for dinner many times. And so I wasn't surprised when he answered the door wearing a, a polo shirt that probably fit him sometime in the Jimmy Carter administration. And below the polo shirt, even tighter bikini briefs. <laughs> Billy, I've just come from seeing Roger, I said. It, it's, it's time. You sure? And he squeezed his eyes to fight back the tears, and he, he laid a, a bear paw grip on my shoulder to, to steady himself. You, you, you never know for sure, I said, but, but, but yeah, I, I prayed and I offered him the absolution. So, so yeah, it's time. He's, he's definitely dying. And suddenly he, he gathered himself and he, and he ran to get his pants that were draped over the, the kitchen island stool. If he's going to be dead soon, then we've got to get to his office quick, he said. His office? I asked, confused. Why in the world do we need to go to his office? You'll see, he said. We'll be back in a jiffy, honey, he hollered at his girlfriend Dottie. And once we got to Roger's law office, Billy produced a key from the pocket of his pants, which also appeared designed for a fraction of this man. <laughs> it, 
Inside, Billy dragged a heavy leather lawyer's chair across the office floor. He stood up on it, and he reached up towards the ceiling, and he removed a, a water-stained tile and then felt around uh, uh, the insides of the hole. And then he pulled down a cardboard banker's box, and he handed it to me. Look, Billy, I, I don't know that we should be doing this. Shut up and take the damn box, he said. <laughs> I looked inside the box, and suddenly I both understood and yet still did not understand what we were doing there. Inside the box, along with a half dozen liquor bottles, were photographs of Roger with women, the kinds of Polaroids I can't describe in Tyler, Texas. None of the women in the pictures I noticed were of his present wife. Prostitutes mostly, Billy said. Pam thought different of him, thought he'd changed, but Roger, God bless him, he never could stop being a rascal. And Billy started to squeeze his eyes again against the tears, and then he grabbed hold of me and cried into my hair. I was still holding the box of dirty pictures and bottles of booze. And after an uncomfortable amount of time, I said, so, Billy, uh, what's the plan here? What are we going to do with this? We're going to get it out of here so his wife never discovers it. That's what we're going to do, he said. She's, she thinks that he's put all this behind him. He should be remembered as the man who was forgiven, not the rascal who couldn't be otherwise. And I looked down at the box and its sordid contents. I, I, I don't know, I said with not a little sanctimony in my voice. I, I'm not sure that's the right thing to do. I, I mean, I, look at these. This is wrong. And just like that, Billy wasn't crying anymore. He narrowed his eyes, and he raised his head back, righteously angry, and he said to me, now, you look here, preacher. You've been standing in that pulpit for years now, throwing that word grace around all over the place like it was seed. Well, it took with me, and it seems to me here we've got ourselves a sinner we can show some grace to before he dies. So we're going to take this, and we're going to put it away once and for all. That wasn't the only evidence we removed from his office that night. Like custodians in the far country, cleaning up after the prodigal who's gone home. I didn't have time to debate the nuances of what's the right thing to do here, but, but clearing away the evidence of the dying Roger's sins, I felt like I was, I was learning grace in practice. It's a lot of stuff, I said, looking in Billy's trunk. We're all camels headed towards the eye of a needle, he replied. We're all camels headed towards the eye of a needle. Listen, a sower went out to sow, Jesus says. Jesus may be without sin, but I mean, he's not without stubbornness. From the moment Jesus emerges from the Jordan River, Jesus manifests a, a bullheaded lack of interest in looking like a respectable Messiah. Not only does he inaugurate his ministry by, by laying his good, clean hands all over lepers, he calls Levi, a, a tax farmer, to follow him. 
When the Pharisees gripe about his poor choice of friends, Jesus ups the ante by eating dinner with a whole gaggle of tax collectors and sinners. When they again question his low bar for the company he keeps, Jesus answers by saying that it's precisely sinners and not the righteous and upright that he has come to call. And note, Jesus says that he's only come to call sinners and low lives. He doesn't say anything at all about repentance. Neither in Mark chapter 2 nor Matthew's parallel passage does Jesus say anything about repentance. He doesn't say, I've come to call and invite them to repent. He says simply, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. When Jesus tells the first of his parables, the parable of the sower in Mark chapter four, he has already landed himself at the top of the Pharisees' people to kill list. And just to make it clear, when what got Jesus on their people to kill list was sowing not among the rocky and weedy dirt of the religious and the morally upright, but among the good soil of losers and lepers and layabouts who actually, exactly because they were losers and lepers and layabouts, they actually had the ears to hear the message of grace. After Roger died, I stopped by later in the week to check on Billy in search of a free meal. The baseball game was turned on when I arrived, but the house was quiet and devoid of any dinner smells wafting from the kitchen. Billy answered the screen door in a different polo shirt, but the same black bikini briefs. Where's Dottie, I asked. And he shook his head and he looked ready to cry again. She left me, he said. She left you. Why in the world would she leave you? She saw one of the pictures. Some woman, you know. It must have fallen out of the box in my car. She thought the picture was mine. But didn't you tell her it wasn't yours? Didn't you explain to her that the photo was Roger's? She didn't give me the chance, he said. She was gone before I got home, left a long note, and won't answer my calls. I guess grace comes at a cost, he said. Here's my point. God is like Billy. Minus the bikini briefs. I offer it to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.